You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thanks for coming out at lunchtime. Um, It is good to be back here in my hometown, um, which every time I come back, I find things that haven't changed in 40 years and other things that have changed in the last six months. Um, So uh, it's great, really is great to be here. Um, I'm going to talk to you today, um, and I'm not going to talk too long uh, because I'm hoping that there'll be a chance for questions and answers. uh, I'm going to talk to you about the book I published last year uh, called How to Think. And in fact, I had been working for some time on this book that just came out called The Year of Our Lord, 1943. And I stopped in the middle of writing it because I was watching the fairly radical and precipitous deterioration in our um, political life in this country. Um, and. <coughs> I wanted to, I felt called to address that um, in some way. I was watching people uh, treat one another in really horrible ways and to feel really good about doing it. Um, And I wanted to try to address that in some way. This, in some ways, the thing that concerned me the most was not that people were angry with one another and not that people were hostile and bitter towards one another, but that they felt so good about it um, and, and, and were pleased and proud of themselves, which is something that I think is still going on. Um, there's a, a couple of recent scholarly articles that I think are very interesting in this regard. Um, one is on what the authors call hyperpartisanship. Um, and the idea behind this article is uh, the discovery that when people want to solidify um, their position in a group, they want to belong, that the best way that they find to confirm their belief is not by, or to confirm their status, is not by affirming the beliefs of their in-group, but by expressing hatred for the out-group. That that is the most effective way of proving to people, uh, to communities you want to belong to, that you really should belong, is by showing that you hate their enemies uh, as much as they do or more than they do. And similarly, um, and this is very closely related, another study showed that when people are relatively unsure of their place within a community, what they do is to take the stances that are characteristic of that community, but to take an extreme form of them. So that I'm, and so to make it beyond doubt that I belong to you. So if it's, if you, if the group that you're belonging to is someone on the left, then you try to move as far left as you can. If the group you want to belong to is on the right, you move as far right as you can. And so what, and those two things fit together, right? The habit of expressing hatred for outsiders and the habit of expressing extreme views of a particular stance, those fit together. And those have a tendency to create this situation of hyperpartisanship. And um, I talk about all this in, the, in how to think. Um, I talk about all this in relation to 
uh, what for some of you will be a very well-known piece of writing, originally an address given by C.S. Lewis in 1944 called The Inner Ring. And one of the, 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 the key idea on The Inner Ring is when Lewis says that the desire, this desire to belong, this desire to be on the inside, uh, he says, is of all human desires, the one that is most likely to make a not very bad person do very bad things. Um, that, uh, that we have this intense desire that is built into us to belong to a community, to be accepted and to be welcomed in the community. And in order to get that kind of welcome, we will do almost anything. Um, and what I didn't realize fully until I started writing the book is that another very famous address of Lewis's, which is called membership, is actually the counterpart to the inner ring. Because what he's trying to do is to show the difference between this desire to belong to an inner ring, which thrives on exclusion. The inner ring, it's not enough that you should be inside. It's vitally important that other people should be outside. And that you can say, I belong, but you don't. I belong, but she doesn't. I belong, but he doesn't. And that desire is one that Lewis thinks is fundamentally perverse. Whereas he says that an actual, a real community is one in which you have what St. Paul calls the many members or organs of the body, in which there is a, a one body which has one overarching purpose, but within that body, enormous diversity of role and function. And it's also one in which others are always welcomed because others do not, bringing others in doesn't make me feel less special. Bringing others in actually enriches my life and the life of the community. And if you read Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, this is the two protagonists, Mark Studdock and Jane Studdock, are actually going in those directions. Mark is being drawn more and more into an inner ring. Jane is being drawn more and more into a genuine community where there is actual membership of the many members of the one body. Um, and it's interesting because Mark is drawn into the the perverse inner ring because of his passionate desire to be affirmed and to be seen as special. Jane actually resists being drawn into the community called St. Anne's because she wants to be independent. She doesn't like to belong. She wants to be her own person and she doesn't realize how much she would be enriched if she actually did accept a role in this community of people who were bound together by a common love. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that Lewis was not like Mark. Lewis was like Jane. His desire, as he puts it in Surprise by Joy, was always to be left alone. Just leave me alone. Just please leave me alone. Just do. And, and he had to be disciplined by the church. One of the reasons he didn't want to become a Christian is to become a Christian means you have to go to church. And there are other people at church, you know, <laughs> and and he had to be he had to discipline his spirit in such a way as to see that participation in the common life of the church as an enrichment of his personhood, 
not a diminishment of his personhood. So his, his personality is very like Jane's. It's not at all like Mark's. But what he's showing is how a certain kind of personality can be drawn into the inner ring. Others maybe are not so vulnerable to be drawn into the inner ring, but they're vulnerable to the delusion of independence. Right? That's the rare person. The much more common person is the one who's desperate to fit in, desperate to belong, desperate to be affirmed. This is one of the reasons why I often say that we talk about people being addicted to social media. No one is addicted to social media. What we are addicted to is the affirmation that we get from other people on social media. We want affirmation by our peers. We want to be told that what we are doing is meaningful. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why it's actually, that's one of the reasons why people are drawn to trolling on social media because if people hate you, they're acknowledging your existence. They're acknowledging you matter in some way. As Oscar Wilde once said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about, right? And so if you're being talked about, even if you're being talked about in a really negative way, you know, then that can be, um, that, that can be something that affirms the, your existence. And so this desire to belong to the inner ring, this desire to be affirmed, this desire to be, if you're not going to be affirmed, to be acknowledged, all of these things um, feed into an environment of hyper-partisanship. And I wanted to try to call people's attention to that. Um, I wanted to try to call people's attention to the dangers. Um, and I wanted this to be a book that was written for my fellow Americans, not for my fellow scholars or my fellow Christians, but for everybody. But I still wanted to write very consciously as a Christian and very openly as a Christian. And so what I, as I was beginning to write this book, I thought, okay, how... Look, everybody knows I'm a Christian already. I can't hide that anymore. You know, even if I wanted to, it's out there. Um, how can I make this work for me instead of work against me? And then I realized that all my adult life, I have been member of two very different communities. One is the community of Christians. The other is the community of academics, and especially academics in the humanities. And those communities don't like each other, and they rarely have anything good to say about each other. Um, and so when I hear my fellow academics talk about what Christians are like, I often say, well, no, we're not all like that. you know." And then when I hear my fellow academics talk about Christians, I say, well, we're not all like that. right?" And I thought, that's what's going to be the hinge of my entire argument is that I know what it's like to live in overlapping but hostile communities, right? And, um, and that means that I know something about what it's like to hear distortions and uncharitable interpretations coming from two sides, not just coming from one. That's my advantage. I'm not somebody who just lives in one community, and because I'm in one community, I'm always aware of the sins of those people over there, right? But instead, I can see it from both sides. And maybe that's the thing that I can bring to the table. Maybe that is, is, is my, what my contribution can be. 
When you belong to multiple communities, it has the effect of, to some extent, relativizing the commitments of those communities, not in the sense that you don't believe them anymore, but you're constantly aware that you know you are closely connected to other people who don't share the beliefs of that community. And going back and forth between those, I thought, surely that's got to help me somehow. Surely that's got to help me to be able to talk to people about how to think and how to think across community lines how to think in a way that would be recognizable, not just to the people that you love to hang out with, but to the people that you're always in danger of demonizing. How can you do that? That's what I wanted to write the book about. So I'm going to tell you now that, that was, so that's my basic framework where I decided to try to make this um, uh, my, my, my status as a public Christian, but also as an academic make, to make that tension work for me and hope that that would that I could get people to hear me who might not be willing to hear otherwise. So then it's a matter of how I'm going to how I'm going to pursue that. And after a while, I hit on a kind of of strategy. Um, so I'm gonna, uh, but but I didn't say explicitly that this was my strategy. It's my secret strategy. So. I'm gonna so I'm gonna share it just with you, so you can't tell anybody else. You gotta you know keep it only in this room. But just what I've always heard, what happens in Birmingham stays in Birmingham, right? So so that's what I'm, I'm counting on right now. So um, so whenever I have whenever I write a book, I always have a kind of an ideal reader in mind. Sometimes it can be actually a very particular person. There's a book that I'm starting work on now, and I have one particular person in mind as, as, a, as a reader, ideal reader for this book. Um, and, but sometimes it's more of a type, right? So in this case, um, when I was writing How to Think, the, the ideal reader I had in mind was my non-Christian neighbor. I, I would be, I'm delighted to have Christians read the book, and I think that there are things that Christians can learn from the book. But that was not the primary audience I had in mind. I wanted to be able to speak to people who were not Christians and to get them to see Christianity in a slightly different way. So I laid a little trap for them. Okay, this is a secret now. You can't tell anybody about this, but I'm going to tell you about the little trap I laid. First chapter of the book, I write about a young woman named Megan Phelps Roper. Megan Phelps Roper was a member of Westboro Baptist Church. If you're familiar with Westboro, she's the grand, granddaughter of Fred Phelps, who started that church um, and started the website GodHatesFags.com. And they go around and do the protests at funerals and things like that, right? And just pretty, pretty rough crew in a lot of ways. And one of the things that that Fred Phelps's granddaughter Megan would do is go on social media, go on Twitter, and troll liberals and unbelievers, right? And in fact, Christians that she didn't think were worthy. And one of the things that happened in, uh, in, in, as a result of that is that she actually started kind of taunting and mocking um, a Jewish guy um, who ended up responding to her charitably and graciously. And she was so taken aback, a guy named David Abitbal, he, and she was so taken aback by this that she was somewhat disarmed. 
and gradually started asking questions about her upbringing and about what she had been told Christianity is and about what she had told what she had been told about how Christians relate to other people and and eventually the questions that she started asking which were generated by somebody who responded graciously to being trolled who did not return anger for anger but instead returned peaceableness for anger that this undermined her absolute confidence in her community and started her thinking for the first time in her life about whether the things that she had been taught really were true. And when she and when this happened, she ended up having to kind of separate herself from the community of Westboro Baptist Church and, and, and leave that part of Kansas and go somewhere else where she could kind of try to think about what it is that she believed from the beginning. I started with that story in particular because that story is, for a non-believing reader, a very comfortable and familiar kind of story. The narrow-minded, rigid Christian fundamentalist who at some point has to confront the fact that the world is bigger than she thought it was and that fundamentalist Christianity doesn't give you the whole truth and maybe doesn't give you much of it at all. That's a, that's a story that any non-believing reader can get behind because that's how many non most non-believers think about fundamentalism and that's also how they think about changing minds. You change your mind from being a narrow, rigid, limited kind of religious believer to being a more open-minded, tolerant doubter. Okay. Um, but then we go to chapter two. Chapter two is about another young woman, roughly the same age as Megan Phelps Roper. Her name is Leah Labresco. Leah Labresco grew up in Long Island in a completely atheist family she did not have any friends who had any religious belief whatsoever as far as she knew. Her world was a world of natural unbelief. Right? Um, she talks about uh, when she was in high school one time they were doing a class in early modern history and they were talking about Martin Luther and somebody in the class raised their hand and said, are there still Lutherans? Are those, are those still around? You know? And nobody in the class knew. You know? The correct answer is yes and no, um, but uh, <laughs> but they were like, no, I, are there? You know, I, I don't know. I, I you know, probably the only thing that they knew was that there's a. Did you ever see the episode of The Simpsons when Lisa Simpson creates Lutherans? Uh, she she creates a little miniature world, and it, it it like she starts with like with 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 you know the beginnings of life, and then it gradually gets more and more complicated, and then eventually she looks down through her microscope, and there's a guy down there banging a, a piece of parchment onto a door. And she says, "I've created Lutherans." That's probably as close as anybody would get to knowing knowing what that was all about. So so Leah graduates from high school with her unbelief unquestioned. And she goes off to Yale and she gets involved in something called the Yale Political Union or the YPU. And uh, one of the, uh, uh, it's, so it's a debate club. And um, if you're been there around a couple of years and you uh, are seeking a leadership position in the YPU, there are a couple of questions they always ask you. The first question they ask you is, have you ever broken anyone on the floor? 
Now, in the language of the YPU, what that means has, have you ever convinced someone in the middle of a debate to change their mind? Have you ever debated so skillfully that in the debate, the other person had to say, you know, I think you're right and I'm wrong. That's called breaking someone on the floor. That's the first question they want to know. Have you ever broken anyone on the floor? The second question is, have you ever been broken on the floor? And that's the important one. Because what they really want to know is not, are you a better, better debater than anybody else? What they want to know is, have you ever been honest and humble enough to say, I think I'm wrong? I think you've made a better case than me. Whether you've broken somebody on the floor is neither here nor there. Whether you've been broken on the floor is. Because they, the YPU, the tradition of the YPU is, if you've never been broken on the floor, okay, you came to college as an 18-year-old and you've never been wrong about anything. <laughs> you know, you've never had to say, I'm wrong. If that's your position where you can say, I am undefeated in debate, I have been right every single time, then that means that you're not debating in good faith. And that's not the per kind of person we want to be a leader at the YPU. And that, so the idea of being willing to be broken on the floor was really important to Leah. She, as she got more involved with that, she, she said, I want to be one of those people who can say, I'm wrong. You have a better case than I do. And then she started meeting Christians. She started meeting Christians at Yale who knew what they believed and why they believed it, understood the history and the core teachings of the Christian faith and could communicate that to her, to, that to her in a clear and convincing way. And she, she said, but the, I mean, religion, religion is a bunch of nonsense. I know it's a bunch of nonsense. And then she thought, well, wait, maybe I don't know. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe even in relation to Christians, I need to be willing to be broken on the floor. And that led to Leah becoming a Christian. And so, you see what I did there? I set up my readers with the story of Megan Phelps Roper, because that's a story about someone who had, who, who had settled convictions that she then overturned, or at least seriously called into question. But that was familiar, that was comfortable, and then I turned the tables. And now it's not a Christian becoming an unbeliever, but an unbeliever becoming a Christian. And what I'm doing there is saying, hey, if you're gonna say it's valid in the first case, you're gonna need to say it's valid in the second case as well. If you're going to applaud Megan Phelps Roper for being willing to change, then you need to applaud Leah Labresco for being willing to change as well. So, but I wasn't gonna do Leah Labresco first, because that might alienate those readers. What I have to do at the beginning is give them something that they can recognize that's gonna fit a familiar narrative, a comforting narrative, and then and only then do I turn the tables. And in that way, even though I'm writing this book for my fellow Americans and I'm trying to help heal our political culture, I'm also in a way doing a little bit of pre-evangelism. Right? That is, I'm trying to set people up in such a way that they would be willing to take Christianity more seriously. Because some of those people might be willing to read what I have to say because I'm an academic, 
but you know, being a Christian is more central to my identity than being an academic, and I want them to be able to take that seriously as well. So that's my little secret, okay? Which I want you know to stay right here in this room, right? Uh, the fact that we're being recorded might perhaps militate against that, but um, oh well, you know. Um, but but that's what, uh, in addition to trying to do this this larger work of of of, of helping people learn how to think. Um, I also wanted to try to get my unbelieving readers to be willing to think about Christianity as well and to realize that maybe being a Christian is not necessarily what they think it is and that it is possible to be a Christian in a way that is fully engaged with and fully responsible, responsive to the concerns of unbelievers. And I just don't think that I would have done that. I don't think that would be possible if I hadn't in a sense, shown my good faith to my unbelieving readers by showing them that uh, I'm fully aware of the dangers of too narrow and too rigid a model of Christianity. Um, but there's this other side of the story as well. So um, that, I think, is where I tried to take something which in many ways I have throughout my life I felt to be a problem. And the problem is not having a single community that I belong to. I, when I was a young scholar, I used to really struggle with that. I used to think, who is my audience going to be? Am I gonna write for my fellow Christians or am I gonna write for my scholarly peers even if they're not Christian? And, uh, and sometimes the more I do the one, the harder it is to do the other. And you know, and I struggled and struggled and struggled until I finally got to some point where I realized, you know what, you're not ever going to choose. You're actually just going to go back and forth. You might write one book for your fellow Christians and then another book for your fellow scholars and then back to a book for your, you know, and you're just going to go back and forth. You're just going to have multiple audiences. Your life is not going to be simple <laughs> in that way. It's going to be complicated and you're just going to have to, you know, put on your big boy pants and deal with it. And, and, and so what I had perceived for a long time to be a kind of a weakness or a problem or a difficulty, I decided I needed to embrace it as a possibility. Um, and so that's what I was doing in that book. And it, it has been, it's been gratifying. I mean, I've gotten responses from a lot of people. I've done, I did a lot of podcast interviews and other kinds of interviews about the book where people were like, well, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever talked to a Christian like you before, you know, and I think, well, you probably have. You just didn't know that you had. You weren't aware of it. Um, but this idea of kind of cracking open a closed shell was something that, that I take a lot of satisfaction in. And, um, and I think that's been good practice for me. I, 29 years I taught at Wheaton College where everybody was either a committed Christian or they knew to fake it. Um, and, um, and, and now I'm at Baylor where some of my students, it's kind of similar to Samford in the sense that I have some deeply committed Christian students and I have some who are what one of my colleagues calls cheerful pagans. Um, and then I have some, I have Muslim students, I have Buddhist students, I have Hindu students, I have, you know, uh, the whole range of things. Um, and, uh, uh, a student who read how to think. Uh, came into my uh, office hours to talk to me. She said, I wanted to talk to you because I'm a, I'm a part of the Baylor Secularist Alliance and I am, you know, I'm an atheist. And I'm very serious about being an atheist. 
and uh, but but I feel like maybe you're somebody I could talk to. And so we've had like two or three great conversations. And just uh, last week, she gave me the single greatest compliment I have ever received. And I'm sorry, it's going to sound like bragging, and maybe it is, but I'm so excited and pleased by this. She said, we got at the end of the conversation, and she said, Dr. Jacobs, uh, this has been really great. I really have loved talking with you. I think my favorite Christians are you and Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Lord, take me now. This is as good as it's ever going to get for me. You know, I have been mentioned in the same breath with Fred Rogers. And, wow, just. So. Let me try to sum things up here, uh, and then and then Q and A. I hope, or just conversation. Um, w one of the great themes of the book, and one that I want everybody to be mindful of all the time, and this is why I emphasize so much the inner ring problem, is that um, when you really, really think, you don't just put your intellectual world uh, at risk; you put your social world at risk. Right. That is. And, and one of the ways that, you know, it's, it's actually fairly easy to tell the difference between an inner ring and a genuine community. The, the inner ring will punish you for having questions. The inner ring will punish you for having doubts. The genuine community will be responsive to you and charitable towards you, even when you doubt, even when you question even when you're unsure. Now, that community might not make you a leader, <laughs> and maybe it shouldn't make you a leader. If you've read uh, That Hideous Strength, a really interesting figure in this regard is a man called McPhee, who is part of the community but is not given any leadership because he doesn't have the core beliefs of the community. But he's never excluded. He's always welcomed, and he has a role, and it's a significant role. Um, but he doesn't get to be a leader. And the way that they put it is that we can't put you in leadership because you do not have the protection that comes from committed belief. You know, in other words, for your own good, right? Um, it's not because we don't love you, but because you don't have the protection that comes from committed belief, which I think is a really interesting theme. But the idea is that his questions and doubts never exclude him. And they never exclude him from the community. The inner ring is the one where you ask the wrong question or you express a little skepticism about this or that and you are forcefully excluded. You are belittled or mocked. If that's the treatment that people are giving you, it's an inner ring. It's not a community. But we don't know that in advance. We don't know that in advance, right? And that's why it can always be so such a source of anxiety to confess that you are not sure about certain things that are core values of the community you want to belong to. You're not sure because you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. You don't know whether you're going to be excluded or whether you're going to be welcomed anyway. So it's a social risk. It's always a social risk. And I think we need to remember that for ourselves, and we also need to remember that in, in relation to others. And if it's a community that in any way involves learning, and that is or should be just as true of a church community as it is of an academic community, right? We should be learning. We should be growing. We should be growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man because this is what Christ himself did. As we are seeking that, right, it's, it's an intrinsically risky endeavor. It, it just is. 
There is no way to do it that doesn't put us at risk. And so what we want to be is the kinds of community that accept those risks, the risks of growing and learning, accept the challenges that what we learn puts before us, accept the, the possibility uh, that, uh, as the poet Rilke says, uh, you must change your life. Um, accept the possibility, the certainty, if you're a Christian, that as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You've got to accept those risks, um, realize that that's what they are, and be gracious and kind and forbearing towards one another as we struggle through these things. There is no way that thinking, learning, growing can ever be safe. Um, but as someone once said, it's possible for something not to be safe and yet to be good. So thank you very much for that, and I will stop there and then see what questions you have. Okay, yes? James, with um, the inability to disagree, mm -hmm. to seek out the annihilation of the other right. side, right. In, in the setting of the university and even the setting of the church, has your, your experience been that that is a product of the younger generation coming in and bringing that perspective or the establishment bringing it in from the top down? Yeah. Um, that is, you know, it is, um, that's, an interest, uh, that's an interesting and a really important question. I think that there are multiple things feeding into this. If you look at, um, so in, in uh, a really famous book is 1987, Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind. And one of the things that Bloom said uh, that was universally true of the undergraduates of that time was that they are relativists, um, that they, they do not believe in any settled uh, right and wrong um, and uh, flee from any kind of certainty uh, or, or any kind of uh, absolute assertion um, and I think in the 30 years since that book is published, that is, we've made a 180 degree turn on that, right? That there are more and more people for whom they are guided by absolute certainties. Um, and I see that as a, as a response in large part to um, the, the problem of information overload. Right? That when people are bombarded by information or what claims to be information from all sides, when there's this constant uh, set of assertions coming from television, social media of various kinds, then uh, it, it creates a kind of a desperation. It creates a desperation in, in people to find some way to filter uh, what they're hearing. Um, and, and, and the, the stronger the flow, um, the more damaging it feels and the more desperate you become for a filter that is not subtle, but a filter that is kind of absolute, right? And, and what that means is that you, you then become intolerant of any expression of a different point of view. Um, and you don't learn to distinguish between the more extreme and the more gentle forms of the opposing point of view. The whole world gets divided into allies and enemies. 
Um, and I just think that is, that is natural and to some degree inevitable because, um, because information overload does that to us. We are just not cognitively or morally prepared to deal with the amount of information that comes towards us. And every time there is a revolution in, um, in information technology, we get this. Um, so a few years ago, Anne Blair, a historian at Harvard, published a book called Too Much to Know. And it was, it's, it's about the 16th century. <laughs> and the book is about during the, the, the first century of print and how people were just completely disoriented and freaked out by the amount of information that was now available to them. And no idea how to navigate it, no idea how to work through it. And so all these, like, for instance, one of the things that happened at that time was uh, the, the proliferation of books that were meant to be kind of guidebooks to great texts. You know, you can't read them all yourself, but you can, we'll give you a guidance, we'll, we will, we will take out, also people would make notebooks of their own, you know, that would usually, they'd make commonplace books where they would write out things. Um, those were the good guys. The bad guys were the ones who, whenever they saw something interesting in a book, cut it out and then pasted it into a notebook, which meant nobody else would ever be able to use that book again. And uh, but but it was it was there, there was this sense of desperation that we are so overwhelmed by knowledge that we can't manage. We need somebody to manage it for us. And so that's what happens online. That's one of the ways that people have a, a range of strategies. It, uh, the strategies involve, you know, not just choosing who to follow and who not to follow on social media, but also using um, hashtags, for instance, as a way of indicating your allegiances. And then that way you can find like-minded people because they're using the same hashtags, right? Um, there are all sorts of ways in which people kind of strategize for this. So what I think is happening is it is a, a mainly young, but not only young people, who are being overwhelmed by a new technological environment and who are desperate to try to find some way to manage it. Um, and and in, in that kind of environment, hatred of the outsider becomes a kind of a survival strategy, a way of just navigating day to day. And then when you couple that with the desire to be affirmed by the, the social group that you want to belong to, then that intensifies that even more. And what, what really concerns me right now is that I don't know how you get out of that spiral, right? I just don't know how you get out of that spiral. It would require people, it, it, the first thing that would require is for conversations to be moved off of Twitter because they're not conversations. Those are, you know, something different is happening. I mentioned in the book, um, uh, a, a friend of mine, a novelist in San Francisco named uh, named Robin Sloan, who went to a conversation. He, he went to a debate at the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco, and the way they structure the debate is this: you have two people who represent two sides of an issue, A and B, and the, be, before the debate actually gets underway, A has to say what, let's say, it's a he says to say what he thinks B's position is. A, you summarize B's position, and you can't go any further until B says, yes, you have accurately uh, summarized my position. And then B has to do the same for A. You ask her to say, what does he think? And then once, only once, both of these people have said, yes, you have accurately summarized my view. 
can the debate begin? And if you never get to that point, then you never get a debate. That's just sorry. That's just you have to do it. You cannot go any further until you do that. You think that's going to happen on Twitter? You think that's going to happen on Facebook? You know, I don't think so. So, so there have to be environments in which people are willing to do that. But that's going to mean overcoming right? Uh, something really important, right? I don't want the bad people to have a reasonable position, right? I don't, I don't want that. I want their position to be nasty and ugly and vicious because if it is, then I am fully justified in repudiating it, right? So that's the way that <laughs> like things to be. And there's, again, this is socially scary, socially risky. I think I, I mentioned this in the book, but some years ago I did a, many years ago, I, I spent a summer in Nigeria teaching at a seminary there. And they asked me to teach a course called Practical Apologetics. No idea what that was supposed to mean. But I basically understood it as a kind of a class among, in, in rhetoric. And so many of my students came, some of them came from overwhelmingly Christian parts of Nigeria, but many of them came from Muslim-dominated portions or places where Muslims and Christians were more or less in equal numbers, as they are in kind of Nigeria as a whole. There's about... You know, 45%, Nigeria is about 45% Muslim, about 42% Christian right now, and it's about what it was at the time. And, um, and so I was, I was trying to get them to think about, like, for instance, what do you say when a Muslim says that Christians are polytheists, that they believe in three gods? Um, and they were like, well, that's, that's, that's stupid. I said, well, that's, that's not a really good strategy. So let's try to think about it. How, why, do, why, does, why would a Muslim say that? Why would they think of it that way? And I had some of my students come to me and say, Dr. Jacobs, I was converted from Islam. My parents are Muslims. I was raised a Muslim. I, you know, I became a Christian at great cost to myself. I don't want to think like a Muslim. That's what I escaped. That's what God delivered me from. I don't want to think like that. And <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to have an answer to that, <clears throat> certainly not one that was compelling to them. So, so again, there can be social and personal as well as intellectual costs to confronting the idea that these people on the other side have some, something to say for themselves, some kind of legitimacy, some sort of real concern, and most people don't want to do it. And so... You know, you're probably not even going to go to the Long Now Foundation and how, engage in one of these debates unless you're somebody who has already um, committed to some kind of serious engagement with the other side. And why would anybody do that? Um, I think the only way they're going to do it is that if they found people who are on the other side but who are gracious and forbearing and patient towards them. Um, and, and that's the only way. I said this in a, 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 or this morning at Sanford. You always hear people lecturing other people about how important it is to be civil. And first of all, I mean, I'm just not sure how civil it is to lecture people about civility. <laughs> but secondly, if you want people to be civil, be civil yourself. Practice civility. Um, that's more likely to win people over than anything else. So it's it, how to get people to the point of even being willing to have these conversations is something that I'm really struggling with right now. Yes, sir. 
Dennis. Uh, I think about a month ago I read an editorial by A.B. Stoddard, uh, mm. senior editor of Real Clear Politics, mm -hmm. and uh, she was talking about the really mutually exclusive responses to the Inspector General report on Russian collusion, mm -hmm. an example of how mm -hmm. unbelievably divided we are. Same documents, same right. facts, but right. mutually exclusive right. interpretations. Right. Totally contrary to one another. Yeah. I think that's what we're all here sort of mm -hmm. sharing with you that we're struggling with that kind of hyper, mm -hmm. hyper-partisanship. Right. Almost kind of like functional Manichaeanism. Yeah, right. yeah, it is. Well, in your opinion, this is my question, mm -hmm. uh, are there any public intellectuals, publishing houses, news outlets, in your opinion, are helping us move beyond this impasse? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, it is, um, there, there, are, there are places that try to make room for dissenting views, but to keep those clearly marked as dissenting views, that is, as not the standard uh, editorial line, right? So I think about, I mean, really thankful that the New York Times makes room for Ross Douthat and David Brooks, but it's in a hundred ways they make it clear that Ross Douthat and David Brooks do not represent the New York Times, right? And, um, and I think that's true. There's a little more intellectual diversity at The Atlantic, for instance, but most of their, which is somewhat different than the New York Times, uh, the, the Atlantic is more of a kind of a centrist technocratic model. And you will occasionally get pieces in the Atlantic that are strongly against the rule of the technocrats, but they tend to show up on the website, not in the magazine. And in that way, they're kept in a kind of a secondary position, right? And so uh, I, when I try to think about where are the places where the conversation is really, really vigorous, you know, where it's really a genuine debate, a genuine argument, it's 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 hard to find uh, you know a place that does that. You can find individual people who do it. You know um, now uh, I, I've I've known Ross Douthat for many years, so I'm prejudiced in this regard. But I think Ross works really hard to try to say here's what I think is legitimate about the concerns of the other side. Um, another person I've known for some years is Connor Friedersdorf, who writes for The Atlantic. And Connor, I think, is really good about that as well. And giving like long, he, but he writes on the website, which means he gets about as much room as he wants. So he can have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words of people who are dissenting from him and saying, I think you're wrong, Connor, and here's why. And he'll really let them go at great length. I think that's such a great model, right? But you know, what, what happens is that then, then you know, um, uh, conservatives say to Ross Douthat, oh, please stop pretending to be a conservative. You're, a, you're, you're as liberal as any of them, you know. And then the people on the left say, why does the New York Times publish a fascist like Ross Douthat? You know, and so you just, you just end up getting shot at from both sides with, uh, you know, with, with equal fierceness and intensity. And that doesn't always make you right, okay? It doesn't, just because everybody hates you doesn't mean you're right. Um, but it's not a bad sign. It's not a bad sign if you're someone who is getting hammered by both sides. That often means you're trying to be fair. Um, 
And so I, I, I try to look for people who do that. But I, and I find individual people, but I don't find magazines or newspapers or TV shows that are conducive to that. You know, some, um, uh, you think about the, the form of the TV. Well, here, somebody, so uh, another old friend of mine, Rod Dreher, uh, is, writes for the American Conservative. And um, years ago, Rod was, uh, was living in New York and writing in New York, and he was sometimes asked to be on on um, TV talk shows, cable TV, you know, debate, political debate shows. And he said one of the things they told him very clearly is uh, that, you know, we're, we want you here to represent the conservative position. And so it's your job to do that. And, and, and they said that because they wanted to make sure that Rod never said to anybody else who was on the show with him, I think you're right about that. Like, like you, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't be broken on the floor. You can't say, because that's not what these things are for. It's the crossfire model, right? You know, where the, where the ideal, the platonic ideal of this kind of conversation is people shouting at each other and condemning each other. Um, and so he was told explicitly, you can't change your mind. You can't acknowledge a valid point on the other side. That is not what we're bringing you on to do. And so I think that that kind of agonistic and antagonistic model is built into the media culture. And uh, so, so one of the things to, to think about is, you know, where is there a place where that's not built in? Where is there a place? And you know, one of the things I think, well, I don't find it in the media culture. How about if we do it at church? <laughs> How about that? Jason. Um, you mentioned Dreher, and this just keeps echoing in my mind. Is, what do you say to, this is nice, uh, Alan, this is great nostalgia, but mm -hmm. it's time to hit the Benedict option. Uh, right. The ship sailed. Um, yep. You sound like a, an old middle class white guy. Yeah. Your privilege. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. What, what, what do you say, because that, that is the third rail now Right. the conversation. Right. What, what I say is, um, I say so many things, Jason. How, uh, <laughs> I say so many things. Um, wh one of the things that I say is, is um, I, you know, I, I am uh, I'm not on the Benedict Option bandwagon, but I am on the Christian formation bandwagon. Right. And one of the things when, when people are critical of the Benedict option of the kind of withdrawal, uh, what, what Rod calls a strategic withdrawal into uh, these sort of communities of faith, when people say, I hate that, that's wrong, I don't believe in it, I, I, I want to know what are you going to do instead? Or, you know, do you think we're doing fine? You think Christians in America are doing just fine? Do we just keep doing what we're doing? And then if you don't, then what are you going to do? And one of the ways I've argued with Rod, with Rod about this is that Rod says what we need is strategic withdrawal. And I say I don't think so. I think what we need is strategic attentiveness to the Christian tradition. You know, and let, 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 us, let us take Christian formation seriously. And let's do whatever we have to do to take 
Christian formation seriously. And then let's see what happens. Right. You know, if the world ends up shunning us and throwing us out, then so be it. Right. But it might be that if we take Christian formation really, really seriously, that we, we might end up having more of an impact than we than we think that we're going to have. So that's one thing. The second thing, again, I really have to try to restrain myself about this. But one of the things that I found is that it actually is not a bad situation to be somebody who is working from within a Christian institution, which I did at Wheaton and then now at Baylor, and then to reach out towards the larger world because you're not as vulnerable that way. Um, like, I, I, I'm not going to get fired for saying something unpopular, right? Um, but what I found when people say, well, you know, liberal institutions are all against us, liberal institutions, secular institutions are all against Christians, kind of depends. They're not all the same. Like, I think because I have been so, so I'm in, you know, PhD in English, I've been open about, very open about being a Christian my whole career. I think I'm unemployable at a secular university. I'm as sure as I can be that I am completely unemployable. No secular university in the country would hire me. On the other hand, secular presses are happy to publish the books that I write. Okay, So those are both institutions of liberal secularism or secular liberalism, but they don't function in exactly the same way. And there are possibilities you know, for reaching out through the one kind of institution where there's not at, at others. So I'm not going to complain about not being able to teach at a secular university when I have access to an audience um, that uh, I'm really thankful to have. Um, and I can say things and take the risk of being unpopular about certain things because I'm not going to have the political correctness police or whatever you want to say come down on me. Uh, and so I think that the, the, the institutions of liberal secularism are actually way more complicated and way more diverse than we think. And there are possible ways to get hearing in places where most people don't think there's a positive. Like, for instance, I have some friends who live in Hollywood. And <laughs> there, is so, there are so many more Christians in Hollywood than anybody has any suspicion. You know, they do keep it undercover for the most part, but there, there are genuine ministry opportunities there and genuine things that can be done. Um, it, the institutions are often just way more complicated than we think, but we can't reach those institutions unless we are people who are seriously formed in the Christian faith. If not, we've got nothing to bring. We have nothing to bring, right? If you're just going to go and tell people what, you know, what they already know, what's the point? What's the point of that? So I want, I want a missionary church. I want a church that is, that is committed to outreach. I want a church that is committed to sharing the gospel. But I want to make sure that the people who are doing it know what they're talking about, you know, and have uh, uh, and not just knowledge, but have sufficient formation as Christians that they can bear up under the buffeting that they're going to receive otherwise. So I, I, while I'm not on board with a Benedict option as such, I do think that the core idea of the Benedict option, which is that we need to take Christian formation much more seriously than we have, is exactly right. So the, so the people who are against the Benedict option, I say, great, get it, totally fine. What's your plan for serious Christian formation?
And whenever I ask that question, I get no answers. No answers at all. And I think you can't possibly think that we're doing just great. You cannot possibly think that American Christianity is flourishing, right? So what is our model? Um, I really want people in the church to be thinking about that um, and to be trying experiments, crazy ideas, whatever we need to do in order to try to form a new generation of Christians who, who have what it takes to be in the world but not of it. Yeah. And along the similar lines, like what would you say to parents in churches as particularly parents, they think about sending their kids to college, right. particularly like a secular university. Right. Um, there's, you know, get a little nervous thinking about sending your precious baby to a place right. where you kind of feel like you're going to try to indoctrinate them yeah. into a godless world. Right, right. First of all, I almost wish there were more parents like that because most of the ones I talk to only care about whether their kid's going to get into law school or med school or business school. You know, I mean, that is, it is, it is, um, college has become so expensive now and parents are making such an enormous investment that over and over again, what, when I talk to parents now, they don't ask what is life going to be like for my daughter or my son at Baylor. They're like, how many of your grads get into med school? What med school do they get into? It's like increasingly college is being looked at as just something you've got to overleap as quickly as you can in order to get to um, the, the professional training that is going to give you return on investment. <laughs> you know, if you're a parent, that's, that's getting parents to take the idea of education seriously at all is something that I would really like to see more of. But I do think that one of the reasons that Christian parents do worry about that is that on, when they do worry about their, their, you know, their, their precious children being indoctrinated is that they're aware on some level that the kids are not that well formed because in many cases what they've done, they've gone to churches where the main goal is to entertain the kids and to keep them, you know, cheerfully there and not desperate to go somewhere else. And while on the one hand the parents are like, oh, thank goodness, my kid likes going to youth group, you know, um, you know, because they stay up late and watch movies or do lock-ins or whatever, you know, that that uh, they on some level they then start saying, yeah, but how well prepared are they? To, for, how, for instance, how, how well prepared would they be to do what happened to Leah Labresco and to go into a place where there are people who don't agree with you at all, but they're serious and thoughtful? You know, how are we going to reckon with that? And um, and um, and so when parents are concerned about that, I think often they're concerned because they're aware on some level that they maybe haven't done everything that they needed to do in order to form their their children as really serious and thoughtful Christians. So when, when that sort of thing comes up, and it does, I get those kind of conversations. One of the things that I tell people is that, is that most major universities have some kind of Christian study center um, that is either independent of any denomination or they have denominational houses, you know, like the, the Canterbury houses that you have in, 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 in different universities. And there are John Wesley centers and, you know, things like that, depending on uh, which tradition you come from. Those are not always great, but in many universities, there are some really, really first-rate ones. And what they need is to be around other thoughtful Christians who are also able to have serious conversations, serious and non-threatening, non-judgmental conversations about what they're learning in school. Because if they don't have, I, the, way, the, the way that I always say it, put it, this is maybe like can sum up what I'm, 
what, what my interests are and what I believe, and, and maybe this would be a good way to close up, but we're about done, I assume. Um, but the main thing that I say is this, our culture, our, our, our general culture catechizes. It catechizes people. It doesn't just recommend or suggest, it catechizes. It teaches, look, the, the, you may think that the changes in what young people think about sexuality are good or bad. Whether they're good or bad, they have happened because of a culture that catechizes. It has a hundred different ways of telling you this is the right thing to believe, this is the wrong thing to believe, this is where you, who you need to be, this is what you need to say or be in order to be accepted, this is what will get you rejected. It is incredibly good at it and it does it 24-7, right? It is there all the time. Sorry, an hour and a half on Sunday morning is not going to resist that. So what the church has to develop is in relation to the larger culture, the church has to develop what I call counter catechesis, right? If you've got a catechesis that goes one way, we need a counter catechesis, one that, and by counter, I don't mean anti, right? Because there are things that are, that the people are catechized into through our secular culture or, or media culture that may be good and may be right and may be worthy of our affirmation. So the counter catechesis is one that's going to give a different context, a different foundation, and it is going to have to be, it can't be as extensive as the catechesis of a 24-7 media culture, can't. But it can get a heck of a lot closer than it is right now. And what it has to do is to rely on the building of strong ties rather than weak ties. Because the, that's the weakness of the catechesis of the culture as a whole. It is built on weak ties what the sociologists call weak ties. Easily frayed, easily fragmented, easily lost, easily broken, right? If our ties can't be, or they're not ones that are gonna be forged 24 seven, they can nevertheless be strong ties. And if the ties are strong enough, the ties that bind us to one another in fellowship and, and shared communion, if those are strong enough, then they can become sort of the, the, um, the channel through which a counter catechesis can happen. Um, and that has, uh, it is my prayer that church, every church will take that very seriously. That that's the task of counter catechesis is hard, it's gonna be slow, it's gonna be difficult, it's gonna require experimentation, it's gonna be, it's gonna require a lot of trial and error. But we gotta get serious about this before it's too late. Is that a good note to end on? All right, we'll end on that note. Thank you all for your time. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.